everyone, lovely to see you and for you to hear me. <laughs> if we ever met, I'm Dave. I thought I'd address something that many people have asked me about. Yes, I have lost a lot of weight. <laughs> Let me um, answer the three most common questions. One, yes, it was on purpose. Two, I'm not sick. Thank you for your concern. Three, yes, I'm um, terrifically excited um, about putting it all back on over the next six months. <laughs> and if you want to see me at Kentucky Fried Chicken after church, I'll see you there. <laughs> Guys, uh, it's funny, this passage, <laughs> uh, Rosie has shared um, my thoughts on it. Uh, I was saying to my wife, Sammy, oh, this is a really complex passage. She came back from Bible study. She goes, it wasn't complex. It was the simplest passage I've ever read in my life. So let you be the judge as we have a look at it. One way or the other, God's word speaks... And he speaks to us through his word. Um, and this is a passage of incredible, profound beauty and richness and depth, which I think has really blessed me this week. Grab hold of um, a lot of what God is planning and, and uh, has already done in our lives. Let's pray and let's have a look at this together. Father, uh, we thank you so much uh, for your kindness and mercy to us, that you're a God who speaks. You're not silent. Oh God, take away the distractions of our mind. Focus our hearts and souls on what you say to us, that we do not leave here the same, uh, but transformed. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Robert Robinson uh, was an um, Englishman who lived 300 years ago. Uh, he became a Christian at the age of 20. Two years later, uh, he wrote a song uh, for which he is still known. Uh, a very, very famous song for people who've got a Christian background anyway. Uh, and the song is called... Come thou fount of every blessing. Does anyone know this song? You know it? Okay. He was 22 years old when he wrote that. He'd been a Christian for two years. What have you done with your life? <laughs> what have you done? I can barely write my own name. Look at the... This is the world without Netflix, the way he writes, you know. It's a wonderful uh, song about God's faithfulness to us. Um, it's got a few funny words in it, you know, old Englishy kind of words. It talks about, I think, what Ebenezer, um, and that the Ebenezer is a, a memorial stone the prophet Samuel put up to God. But if you don't know that, you're like Ebenezer. What am I? Um, but the reason why it's such a powerful song and a powerful illustration from the prophet Samuel as well is about God's faithfulness. God is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful. My favourite verse is verse four. It's got to be on the screen. Check it out. I think um, it speaks to many of us. Uh, Prone to wander, verse 4. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. After writing this hymn, uh, Robinson wrote a few more um, songs, uh, became a pastor even. But tragically, um, as his life went on, um, decades later, uh, he did wander. Uh, by the time he was in his early 50s, uh, he had um, left the Lord that he loved. The Christian life is hard. It's a difficult journey. We know that. We, we should know that. Jesus recruited his followers on earth, not by promising riches and, and fame, but um, by promising suffering. And yet... Um, we face disappointment and difficulty. Yes, joy and peace beyond what the world can offer, but um, frustration. I think the biggest um, 
difficulty we face is that difference between our expectations and our experiences. We expect one thing, but the experience of what we have is so hard for us. Um, And so for many of us, we have seasons of drifting spiritually. And of course, as much as we celebrate being back here together, when you look around this room, if you've been at EV for any length of time, you'll be able to know the people who also aren't here. Not because of they're not here today, but they've walked away from Jesus. I, I think we're, we're tempted to believe that this is a modern phenomenon. You know, it's harder to be a Christian today than in any other period of time in history. Is that what you... Do you, you know, you've got the internet. You've got Joe Biden and Donald Trump. You've got liberalism, conservatism. You've got... Pick your reason why it's harder today for us than any other generation. But I think when you consider what the book of Hebrews has been teaching us over the last three weeks... Um, you need to realise that difficulty in the Christian life is an ancient and also ever-contemporary experience for every Christian. Um, And so, because of that, um, because of the difficulty that that we face, but also because of the the difficulty that we've seen that the church who originally received the book of Hebrews experience, um, right at the heart of, of Hebrews is what is quite a simple but profoundly important message for us to, to understand and, I think, cling to. And, and it's, it's a message that says, hold fast. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. And over the last three chapters and the last three weeks, we've been studying this passage together, this book together. I think we've seen uh, there's several um, reasons Um, given to us, several um, motivations provided for us in the first three chapters um, as to why we should go up and how we should keep going, I should say. Um, But here today in chapter 4, in what is, I think, a a complex chapter on a surface level, um, what we begin to see is a a repetition of that theme, don't give up, hold fast, keep going, but also uh, a building of the theme, uh, a development of a new way of, of considering perseverance, And I want to suggest to you that the best way of approaching this topic today is by remembering um, that we as Christians are part of something much, much bigger than what we uh, can see. That we're we're part of a bigger story, God's story. And this passage makes clear to us that God's story stretches from eternity past to eternity future, all the way yesterday, all the way tomorrow. And God's story, what he's been doing transforms today for us. And it helps us grab hold of not just uh, how we persevere, um, but why, I think in a beautiful and profound way. Um, So let's look at this passage together, chapter 4. If you have a Bible, please have it open uh, in front of you. Um, Look it up on your phone. Uh, I can see if you're on Facebook, by the way. So (laughs) I can't, but the person behind you can, so come on. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 4. Now, the best way to understand this passage is to realise that this passage uh, uses a story, an example from the Old Testament that we saw begin last week in chapter 3. And the story from the Old Testament is the story of the Israelite people and their refusal to enter the promised land that God had provided for them. So you've got that. That's the story, the example that's being used here. And the reason that it's being used in this chapter um, is as a contrast for us. The author is saying, hey, here's this story. Um, 
We need to learn from it. And so the best way to understand what's going on is every time that Hebrews 4 uses the word they, realize it's talking about the Israelite people in the Old Testament. And every time Hebrews 4 uses the word we, it's speaking about Christian people, um, the original recipients of Hebrews, but also us today. So there's a contrast taking place. Uh, and the purpose is that we learn from them not to do and what to do and the results of, of doing both. Let me show you what I mean. Look at the last verse of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. Um, chapter 3, verse 19 says, So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. The Israelites were unable to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. Verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Okay, so uh, the argument sort of introduced for us here is that the Israelite people did not enter the promised land because of unbelief. Um, So, watch out. Make sure... You don't do what they did. Don't share their unbelief or you too will fall short of, well, what? Verse 2, verse 3. We've had good news proclaimed to us, like they did, that the deliverance from enslavement, new life. But they didn't believe it. Verse 3. But if we do believe it, well, what can we enter? Well, it's not the promised land. It's not the land of Canaan, of the Old Testament. What we're promised of entering is this thing, this place called the rest. You see that there? The rest. And the word rest is an interesting word, isn't it? Um, It's actually got multiple definitions in English. Eight or nine different definitions. And the problem is um, that none of those definitions are the way that it's used here. And this word is actually used 11 times in this passage. And it's integral. to our understanding of what God is teaching us today. We have to understand it or we won't understand what God's saying here properly, I think. And um, so what I want to do is just really look at uh, the questions, what is the rest? Um, And then really consider how do we enter it and and when do we enter it um, and and what that looks like. Um, So, simple question, what is the rest? Look at the passage again, if you can, before you. You see, not only does it use the Old Testament a lot as an example, as this history illustration, it also quotes the Old Testament a lot. Um, Look at verse 3. Verse 3, we have a quote from Psalm 95, as we saw last week. And here, David, who writes that psalm, is quoting God. um, And God says, They shall never enter my rest. They will never enter my rest. And then there's other additional quotes from the Old Testament as well. So what we learn initially, immediately from that uh, quotation is two things. Firstly, um, God's rest, whatever this rest is, is God's. He owns it. It's not ours. It's his. Also, it's old. How do we know it's old? Because it's quoted about in the Old Testament. This isn't a new thing for Christians. It's actually something that's been around for a very long time. Not only is it old, have a look at verse verse 4. Verse 4 quotes Genesis chapter 2, which is the story of creation, on the seventh day, God rested. So it's not just old, it's as old as anything. Um, Now, there's a really tightly packaged series of arguments taking place here, um, which we don't have time to dig into. But the one about Genesis, the reason why he quotes Genesis, and this quote here, this is, oh, um, it's huge, it's profoundly important to us. So important. Actually, um, I want you to flip back to, to Genesis uh, if, if you can. Uh, 
Now, Genesis 1 is the story of creation. The creation of the universe takes place over six days. And at the end of every sixth day, it says, if you can see the quote here, look at the last verse of uh, chapter 1. Um, there's an evening and there's a morning. God ends each day with an evening and a morning, ending uh, that period of time. But look at, look at chapter 2. Then we've got the seventh day, verse 2. The seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, and so he rested. Now, why did God rest after he created? Is that one of those questions that you've kind of... It's one of the statements, God rested, that you've never dug into, never thought about. If that's true of you, welcome to the club. It's like, I'm a pastor. I should know that. Why is God... He's not sleeping. Okay? He's not having a nap. It's not what's going on here. Um, we're told why he rests in verse 3. He blesses that day and he makes it holy. Now, we then learn from, from that information, one... This day doesn't have an ending. He doesn't end it. Did you see that? There's no evening time. It, it continues. It's continued. It's eternal too. God makes the day holy. He establishes this rest and calls it holy. And the word holy means dedicated to himself. What do we then see happen in the book of Genesis? Have a look just the next chapter. As it, even your, um, your little subtitle there, what does it talk about? Adam and Eve. Where are Adam and Eve hanging out? The Garden of Eden. What's the Garden of Eden? It's the place where God and his creation, God and his people, his image bearers, fellowship, the first church, God and his people together. So what is God's rest? It's his fellowship with his people. His intention in creation is perfectly packaged for us in design in this word, rest. God has done everything, established his rest, his fellowship with his image bearers, with his people. You know, as one of the um, pastors here, uh, a question I get asked a lot, I um, help out with explaining Christianity and the life series, so people inquiring about Christianity. One of the questions we get quite a lot is, uh, why did God bother you know why did he bother making everything i don't know if you've ever heard that question or thought about it here's your answer from the very beginning of time from the very beginning of creation god has made it absolutely clear to us why has he created all things He has created the universe he created the world he created every creature and then they were good 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 then he creates people we are very good his image bearers and then within the very design of his image bearers, his people, he places our meaning. We are created by God, for God, to be with God. And isn't that the best news you've ever heard? Your life is not about stuff. Your value is not your bank account. It's not your house, it's not your car, it's not your job, it's not your marriage, it's not your children. If you don't have kids, you're of equal worth and value to God as if you do. I have six kids. That does not make me more valuable to God. In fact, it often makes me feel the least valuable to God. <laughs> having children, not having children. Being married, not being married. Those things are not why you matter or don't matter. The very purpose of your existence is to know and know God. 
to love and to be loved by God, the one who made you for his purpose. That's why you're here. Not in this building, on this planet. You don't need to find and invent your own meaning and purpose in life. It's here for you. And that's why none of those things, by the way, will ever give you what you're looking for, will they? They don't. None of them ever do. Because we're created for a deeper, eternal meaning. But what do we see happen next? You're at the Garden of Eden. And then, Genesis chapter 3, the fall, sin, sin, the rebellion, the rejection of God comes into the world. And come back to Hebrews 4 with me now. Hebrews 4, uh, back over. Um, Every one of us inherits the sinful nature that is brought into the world. The fellowship we have with God is broken. We've inherited and also perpetuated that broken fellowship by our own sinfulness that we are born into. By our very birth, we are not in fellowship with God as we were designed to be because of our inherited and by choice sinfulness, rejection, broken fellowship. That's the reality of our existence. And yet what you begin to see happen, and we don't have time to go into it, but what you see happen throughout the Old Testament, and this is why, by the way, the author of the Hebrews is so keen for us, I think one of the main reasons for us to to focus on the Old Testament and see God's plan throughout all of history is we begin to see a pattern emerge of what God decides to do in the face of this broken fellowship. God creates signposts. Now, what's the purpose of a signpost? It's not to do anything, is it? It's the point to something bigger. God establishes the covenants and the promises through the prophets. He speaks to his people. He makes promises to his people. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. He then establishes the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the day where his people gather together as a people with him. He establishes the promised land, the geographic location of a temporary rest against the temporary enslavement that God's people faced in Egypt. And then 1,300 years after his people refused to enter that promised land, verse 2, verse 3, we have had the good news declared to us. Our good news is not a temporary geographic location because of a temporary enslavement to Egyptians. Our good news is not of a promised land, but of a promised king. And God's God's solution to our broken fellowship with him is not a temporary shadow and signpost to point us elsewhere, but is the permanent and eternal re-establishment of his fellowship with his people forever. And this re-establishment and this plan had a, um, it was a person and he had a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And you know, you look at the cross and you think, man, what's going on here? Maybe you think that. Jesus died and he took the punishment that's ours. That's good news. That's the great news, isn't it? But also the Bible records, the gospel accounts record that when this happened, the curtain of the temple was torn in two for top to bottom. Have you read that before? 
We didn't tear it from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom, the inches thick curtain in the temple that separated God from man because of sinfulness. What's that mean? We can know God. The reestablishment of fellowship with God is ours. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he did so, God established him as Lord over heaven and earth. Now, what does all of that mean? Verse 3, when we believe, we can do what? Enter what? That rest. What happens to us when we believe? What's the promise for us for the future? We can have eternal life, peace, rest, not sleep, fellowship, fellowship with God. Now, that's a pretty long answer to the rest. No wonder the dictionary doesn't have it in there. What is the rest? The rest is God's fellowship with his people. When is the rest? The rest is in heaven. God's heaven. Not the television version of heaven with with harps and clouds. Oh, that looks boring, doesn't it? Makes you think, oh, I don't want to go there. But real heaven. Fellowship with God and with his people together. The promise for us as believers is if we believe, trust, in this good news, we will enter the rest. Verse 3, we have entered the rest. Do you see that? That means from the moment you believe... Your future is secure. The Bible puts it like you're glorified already. We're glorified beings as Christian people. Yes, we live here in the now but not yet, but our position, our place in eternity is secure. Hallelujah. Now, as good as that is, and it is good, isn't it? We believe it's ours, the promise, God's work from the past to the future, transforming today. It's not all that God is offering. There's also something else here that I want you to look at. Have a look at um, verse 9 and verse 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Now, this is talking about eternity for the future. Entry to, uh, to God's heaven comes about through believing, trusting in the work of Jesus. It also means the consequence of that is that we stop trusting in our own works for salvation. We rest from trusting in ourselves and instead put our rest in the one who is obedient and whose works have been enough to justify us for salvation. So we stop resting in ourselves, trusting in ourselves, and instead trust in Jesus. However, that is not just a promise for the future when we're in heaven. But it's also a promise that you and I are able to grasp hold of and take hold of today. Be free from your slavery to righteousness as a way of trying to earn your way to heaven. Be free of self-righteousness, of works-based righteousness. Be free of the power of sinfulness today. I'm utterly persuaded and convinced that the promises in Hebrews chapter 4 are not just about the future eternal rest that you and I have positioned and given to us in heaven, but also is a revelation, the extended revelation, the 
the revealing that as well as establishing the temporary rests of the Sabbath and the promised land and the prophets and the covenants, for us as Christians, God has established the eternal rest for us in the future, but also given us a form of that rest today. You and I can know God now. Do you know God? As a Christian person, do you know God now? Yes. You are reconciled with our Father in heaven. Now, what does all of that mean? Um, well, it's not the same as the permanent rest to come. Heaven will be better than right now. Yes. Heaven will be complete, total fellowship. No sinfulness. No more tears. No more worries. No more anxieties. No more temptation and drifting and falling to sin. But right now, well, the version of the rest that we have, it's still a beautiful thing. Amen? It's still a beautiful thing. Knowing God, loving God, talking to God, walking with God, putting our trust in God, the Holy Spirit, in your heart, in your life, in your soul, transforming everything. Make no mistake, it's not the same as what will happen in heaven. It's not as full and complete as heaven, but it is a signpost, a deposit, pushing us forward. And so we have both these truths emerge. And I think you see them here in the passage. What God has done in the past affects your eternity in the future, but also transforms your today. Yesterday and tomorrow transform our today as we, as Christian people, can look to tomorrow and cling on to it and hold on to it. We know where we're going. We know where we're going. It's guaranteed. It's permanent. It's ours. But also, God has filled us with his spirit. We know God today. And with his help and, and his spirit's work, we can keep walking the path that we need to walk to arrive at the place that he's promised. Um, as many of you will know, I am, um, before I was a Christian, before I was a Christian, uh, I was married and divorced. Uh, and th that marriage produced two beautiful children, Sarah and Jamie. Um, Sarah's 19, Jamie's 15. Um, let me tell you, when they first... Uh, oh, and my ex-wife is Irish, okay? And so she lives in Ireland. Not the islands. It's not Samoa, okay? It's Ireland. You don't go on summer holidays to Ireland. Please do not do that. Um, when they first moved over in 2006, let me tell you something about communicating with them. Um, communication with them looked like me going to the news agency and buying an international phone card. Does anyone remember those? <laughs> There'd be a big receipt with all these numbers, and you'd go to your landline, kids, a landline is a telephone where, and you'd pick it up and you'd, seven minutes later, then you'd put in the Irish number, 0035311, and then it would ring. And then I'd be stuck talking to two toddlers who sounded like they were in a Russian submarine. You know, like, and today that's completely different, isn't it? FaceTime, you got friends overseas? Family, Zoom, all that stuff, I can see them, I can hear them crystal clear. Uh, it's completely transformed their relationship. Um, any time of the day or night, I can contact them and be in relationship in this way with them. And any time of the day or the night, they can contact me and ask me for money. I mean, it's really wonderful. <laughs> it's a wonderful, um, joyful relationship we have. But let me, let me tell you something, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's absolutely nothing. It's nothing 
compared to being with him. My friends, how do you think of heaven? Are you afraid of it? Afraid it's going to be boring and weird and terrible? As good as our life can be now, it's nothing. Nothing. Compared to the eternal fellowship of God. Forever. That's ours and it's real. There is a future and eternity awaiting for Christian people where we will be more alive in a moment than we ever have been in the years here. And that's ours. And if you were a believer here today, that's yours. And I think with this passage, uh, we have this um, presentation of the world we live in, of the today and the tomorrow. And we need to balance those things out. We need... Tomorrow needs today and today needs tomorrow. You can't have tomorrow without today. The eternity that God is promising you to enter his rest only exists if you believe today and trust today. There is no other path, there is no other route, there is no other way of getting there. The only way to enter this rest, this eternal rest, is what you do today. Your faith, your belief, your obedience today. Um, But we need tomorrow today. In grief and disappointment and frustration and anger and death and pain. We need tomorrow the promise of eternity, the promise of eternal fellowship with our Father in heaven, don't we? We need it. And it's ours. We're not inventing it. It's not a Pollyanna view of of the future. We're just as a happy ending. Oh, look, this is no, no, this is real. It's solid. It's promised. It's established. It's proven. It's delivered. Now, how we work that out as Christian people uh, is very uh, important for us. And I just want to take a side, um, an aside for a moment and, and say, actually, how we prioritise... I keep... I've, the speakers, I need to walk in the speakers. Um, how we um, prioritise today or tomorrow has enormous impact on our Christian life as individuals and as a church. Um, if we're all about today, if our spiritual life is just about right now, here and now, the only thing that matters is today, tomorrow, ah, heaven, whatever. Today's all that matters. Well, that has a dramatic effect in many of the things we do. It has a dramatic effect in our persistence and our perseverance, by the way. Um, you're only just the problems of today. There's bang, bang, bang. And there's no hope. But I also want to say, as a church, bear with me, as a church, it means we destroy evangelism. And we've seen that in, in, uh, uh, in denominations, whole denominations in Australia, whose obsession um, is on one level beautiful and wonderful and noble and honourable. Because their obsession is fixing the temporary problems of today. Feed the, feed the stomach of the hungry. Yes. How's the homeless? Yes. But tell them the gospel? Oh. And that's a tragedy. We sit in missionary agencies. Oh, if you want to see, a, um, 
our missionaries, our mission partners, we, we're picky. And the reason we're picky is because we want to ensure that we partner with, with missionaries. We support missionaries everywhere, but we want to partner with missionaries who are gospel missionaries. By that I mean to say, as a key component of their activity, is the proclamation of the life-giving, eternity-changing good news of Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw the paralysed man, what did he say first to him? Do you remember this story? He didn't say, get up and walk. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven. What's the most important thing going on in that man's life? He thinks it's his inability to walk. Jesus says it's your inability to know God. And so if you obsess with today, you won't ever talk about eternity. Eternity means nothing. You'll never prioritise it. We need to think about it. It needs to drive our evangelism. The people we love who, who don't know Jesus, tomorrow is real. And that needs to drive us. Gee, I'm going on. Um, the second thing I would say is if you obsess about uh, tomorrow all the time, about heaven, then today doesn't matter. Your maturity, your growth, your uh, sanctification, growth group, oh, who cares, I'll just miss it. Church, whatever, I'm all about heaven, not right now. Your brothers and sisters, they'll get there. I became a Christian when I was six, so my heaven is taken care of. Right now, it doesn't matter. But when you read the Bible, it's very, very clear. No, hold on, your today does matter. What we're doing now is what God displays to the, to the heavenlies as the most important gathering taking place on this earth. What we do matters today. Um, it really matters what we do. Um, I need you, man. And you need each other, don't you? Haven't we missed this? I don't know how your lockdown went. Mine was horrible. I love you, my beautiful wife. Mine was horrible. And so we need to balance out today and tomorrow and what we do. So, the question then becomes, as we consider God's plan and purpose throughout all of human history, seeing uh, tomorrow uh, through yesterday, seeing yesterday through tomorrow, seeing today, um, um, that, that we hold on to these wonderful truths as Christians to drive us forward as, as a motivation for perseverance. But I also want to just, just be very quickly uh, point out that not only is this a verse, these verses... Um, a promise, it's also a warning, a stark warning, and it's a warning for you here today if you do not love Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. It's a warning for you here today if you're actually not kind of going through the motions in your Christianity. And if that is you, I want to say, man, I did that for 28 years. It's a miserable existence, but you're very welcome. We love having you here. Um, but we need to be clear that this is a warning um, because the Israelites did not enter the rest. Um, and the promise for those of us who do not trust in Jesus is that if we do not trust in Jesus today, we will not enter the rest in the future. It's absolutely essential that we follow the path that God has for us. Um, and I want to be uh, um, just spending a little bit of time uh, showing you the path that God has planned, just very, very briefly. Because uh, I actually think the path that God has for us um, forward in perseverance, but also for us, if you're not a Christian, to, to consider Christianity, is one you might not um, immediately make. There's a connection. Um, and it's all about the connection that the, the, the passage has for us between faith and obedience. Have a look at uh, verse 2 and 3. You see the reason why um, uh, the Israelites did not enter, I was because of unbelief, the last verse, sorry, of chapter 3, verse 19. And then verse 2 and verse 3. Um, if we uh, do believe... We will enter. Um, but then in verse 2, there's another strange line which says, uh, the Israelites didn't enter because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. 
Um, and what you begin to notice is that actually there's, a, there's almost an interchangeability um, of reasons given as to why the Israelites didn't enter. Look at verse 6. They did not enter because of their disobedience. But previously it had said they did not enter because of their disbelief. And so the question that we need to ask is, what do we need to do to ensure we enter? The answer given is, well, it's either have faith or on another level, obey. And what I want to point out to you is that there's a link, there's a line being created here for us uh, that connects the, the themes of faith and obedience in a way that we might not have considered before. You see, when we think of faith and obedience, we generally think faith comes first and obedience comes second. Obedience is the, uh, the consequence of faith. Um, so faith is number one, you obey, ah, if you want, but it's faith. But when we see um, the Bible speak this way, and when we look at the gospel and how Jesus spoke about becoming and being a Christian, we realize, hold on, these things are they're not separate in the way Jesus talks about them. They're actually completely intertwined and connected. Consider, when Jesus calls people to follow him, what does he say? He says, um, uh, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. Now, is that a suggestion or a commandment? It's a commandment. And so if we do repent and believe, what are we doing in response to that commandment? We're obeying his commandment. When we become a Christian, it's an action of both faith and obedience intertwined together. We believe by obeying, we obey by believing. And so it is at the beginning of our Christian journeys, so it will continue um, throughout our Christian journeys. A, a Christian is someone who obeys and believes, who believes and obeys. And your behavior, your actions, mentally and physically, are a direct result and also the evidence of, and in addition, the concrete expression of your belief. What you do matters. Now, that's a hard thing for us to hear because we're so used to thinking, oh, it's just about belief. And it is about belief. I want to make it clear. Um, you cannot be justified to God by your behavior alone. Only one man's obedience justifies you before God, and that's Jesus's. But we need to be clear that we have to be people who obey God. Now, the wonderful news is verse 12 and 13, um, God has shown us what that obedience looks like. These verses are often used um, as a kind of read the Bible uh, sermon, sermon verse, and I want to say that's true, it is. Um, but in the context of what we've just read about faith and obedience, we, we actually see um, that what's going on here is... God making clear to us that it is through his voice, hearing his voice, that we have the root and the pathway of faith and obedience. God's word is a sword sharper than any sword. It's not dull and weak. It's what we need, but also it has the ability to, to get right into you, into your heart, your mind, your soul. It will give you strength to obey in ways you may not even intellectually compute as you're reading it. When you become a Christian, it's in response to hearing God's voice in one way or another to believe and obey. But now, as Christians continuing, well, it's also what we need to do day in, day out, every day. I said before that um, the message of Hebrews 4 is both a warning and a promise. Um, and so this morning, um, the question I want to ask you um, is which one applies to you? How you think about God will determine whether this is a wonderful promise or a terrifying warning. My friend, if you are not a Christian here today, I want to make something very clear. We love you and we are so thrilled you're here. If you're someone who is not sure if you're a Christian or not, you might even be faking faith or, or, 
you think you're faking, you're not sure, I want to make it clear, we love you, God loves you, we are thrilled you're here, but take heed, you will not enter God's rest forever. You'll be shut off, cut out. You'll be out of God's fellowship. There's only one pathway, one route. It's through Jesus Christ, faith and obedience, repentance and faith. And so I want to ask you today, though, is that you, and secondly, do you realise that it doesn't have to be this way? You can enter. It is yours. If you want it, it's there for you. But you need to obey by believing. And the second thing I want to say to you um, is if this is a promise for you, if you, if you are a Christian, if the thought of heaven for eternity fills your heart with joy, well, I, I reckon uh, the fact that God calls his fellowship rest is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Because it shows us, it tells us that um, um, his rest, his fellowship does something and gives us something. This is how Jesus puts God's rest in Matthew chapter 11. Some of you will know these verses very well. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we have eternal rest through Christ, but also... My friends, Jesus is offering us rest now. In times of anxiety and doubt, guilt and frustration, fear and failure, we come to our Lord Jesus and we rest in what he has done for us and how he tells us he feels of us. When we have terror and, and, and failure, when we, when we doubt and drift, we come to the Lord Jesus and cling to his eternal promise of eternal rest that he has purchased for us on the cross. The rest is yours today to enjoy, but not just to enjoy, to push and point us forward. The story is told that one day, um, years, after, years after starting to wander from God, Robert Robinson uh, was riding in a stagecoach, a horse and carriage, in the English countryside, when he overheard a woman sitting near him humming. Looking at her, he saw that she was reading a book and humming along with the book, and that the book was a hymnal, uh, a Christian songbook. Catching his eye, um, she, she, said, she asked him whether he knew the song that she was humming. Uh, Robinson was silent for a long moment and then began to weep. And this is what he said. Madam, uh, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the rest, sorry, to enjoy the feelings that I had then. The surprise woman, anonymous surprise woman, um, took him by the hand and read out some of his lyrics back to him. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. She then led him in prayer. And he returned to the fold of God. He returned to the Father, whose arms he remained in for the rest of his days, and whose rest he enjoys, we trust, this very day. My friends, we're going to hear lots of voices this week. 
Lots of voices today. Distracting, discouraging. But there is a voice, the word of God, um, that we must listen to. A voice that offers us his rest today and promises us his rest forever. He promises us that one day, tomorrow, we will arrive in the rest and enjoy his fellowship in ways we never imagined. And so today, hold fast. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. Um, enjoy the promise of God. Let me finish by praying. Uh, Father, we uh, thank you so much for your son Jesus, um, that he established the rest that could be ours eternally and um, today through his death and resurrection. And Lord, I pray for those here who are not Christians. I pray that you would so fill them um, with fear at the thought of a Christless eternity, but also with joy at the thought that the offer is there for them today, that they would cling to your promise and accept your gift of eternal life. For those of us who are Christians, Lord, I pray, let us bring those fears and failures, those doubts and frustrations, those anxieties and worries before you, our Heavenly Father. And let us take hold of your rest and your promise. We are yours and we are yours forever. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.